Please rise for their majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Three cheers for His Majesty the King. Welcome back to Royally Obsessed. I'm Roberta. And I'm Rachel. Still a little nasally, but I'm Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) You sound great. And you're looking lovely in your festive red sweater. Oh, thank you. I always dress up for you. You know that. Well, and especially today because we're bringing you a very special Christmas-themed episode. But before we get into that, the housekeeping reminders, as always, Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast. Also, email us, info at gallerypodcast.com. There's still a little bit of time to get your favorite royal moment of the year in. Rachel, what else is on tap for us today? So much. As you said, a very special pre-Christmas episode this week. We're chatting with Tracy Borman. She is Joint Chief Curator for Historic Royal Palaces. She joins us to discuss all the Christmas traditions originated by Royals Past. There's a lot of fantastic gems and nuggets of wisdom that I must tell you, Roberta, I've already busted out at a little cocktail gathering. People didn't know it. It's very good. I learned so much from Tracy. So much. Yes. There's a lot more. We have a fun flashback to the Queen's Christmas speech during her Anas Horribles, a.k.a. 1992, Megan's latest collab with Clever Brands, Kate's upcoming education decision for George, a legal win for Harry, and some new podcast competition for us in 2024. Very exciting. Lots to tease and lots to get into in this episode. And now it's time for the Weekly Royal Cocktail. But before we dive into that, what are we sipping? I am bringing the cocktail this week, which is inspired by a date night that I had on Friday with Matt at the Commerce Inn in the West Village. Cute. And I went in totally set on ordering red wine, right? But they had this amazing apple cider cocktail. I could not replicate theirs, but I made my own. It's apple cider with vodka, but you add in a, you boil it on the stove and you mix in a pinch of different spices. So you got brown sugar, a cinnamon stick, allspice. You could throw in some cloves, let it boil and then simmer for 10 minutes, then add the vodka once it's cooled a little bit. And it is delicious. I mixed it up. It's not as pretty because the spices have been removed and my cinnamon (gasps) stick is a little, a little bit short, but it's delicious. Oh my gosh. And you have the perfect glass mug for it as well. Oh, we've got a lot of those. Matt's so into cocktails. But I will say it also feels like a great way to kick a cold. Like it's like serves it's dual purpose. Mm. It's cozy and warm, but it kicks a cold. <laughs> it's like apple cider mold wine. I love that. Mm-hmm. And what is commerce in? Was that what oh was your gosh. date night reason? Was it just for the holidays? It was just for the holidays. I will say way back when I first moved to New York in 2008, Commerce was the name of the place in this space. It's on Commerce Street, the tiniest street in the West Village. It's adorable. It's kind of like lantern lit. I love it. Out of a movie. They closed during the pandemic, I found out. And this is now Commerce Inn. So it's different. And I did not know that when I went, but it was still delightful. And not that you need a reason to do date night, I guess. Anyone could do date night at any time. Just wanted to know if there was a special occasion. But that sounds so lovely. No, no special occasion. Just a chance to uh, say Merry Christmas uh, separate from our child. (laughs) What are your Christmas plans? I'm Massachusetts bound. I'm always kind of like the same, same old, same old. But we are headed to New England, which will be really, really nice. We're there for the week. And then we come back ahead of New Year's. And I... I'm saying it here so it happens, but I've already sent a text to friends. We are going to revive our New Year's Eve party for the kids, which is you count down at noon for the new year. And it's a Pinterest inspired (laughs) idea. I did it every year since Finn was born. And then it ended after 2020, of course, for obvious reasons. And it's just I'm not a Pinterest mom, but I do find it super fun because parents have a hard time booking a sitter on New Year's Eve. It's not a great night to go out for anyone, really. So 
this is my workaround. And a lot of people are in town. That's no plans. so smart. Yeah. That's so smart for the kids, too, to be able to count down and not have, you know, they, I try to dress so up late. like Finn gets dressed up. You know, it's kind of silly. It's chaos, but it's something to do. What about you? What are you doing for the holidays? For New Year's Eve, we are reviving this kind of tradition that we started a few years ago, which is that we do predictions for the next year. But there's there some are serious, but some are so silly. It's like, what will be the vegetable of the year? Fennel. Like, it's just so it's <laughs> Wait, do you do this <laughs> so we have family? a lot of fun doing it. With friends, with friends. So Dave and I go out to dinner. We've gone out to dinner for the past couple years with a group of like six to eight friends. And so I booked us at a new place in Philly that I'm really excited to try. It's like vegetable forward. I love vegetable forward. That's my theme for 2024. Ooh, yeah, I love that. Also credit to King Charles, right? That's his probably theme too. (laughs) Vegetable forward. Yeah, I'm going to try to incorporate that in 2024 as well. And for Christmas, I'm already in Florida and we had the Disney trip and I was at a wedding and now just in Florida with my parents enjoying um, a little bit of more quiet time, although it's not quiet. We're, you know, busy, busy with some holiday parties and with my niece and nephew. And um, but yeah, so excited for all of that. Are all your presents wrapped is probably the question of the hour for everyone listening and for oh, gosh, each no. other. Are yours? No, I'm saving it for a great segue when I wrap on oh, Christmas Eve and watch Kate yes, Middleton's too, Christmas concert. So together at Christmas on the TV while I'm rapping, we did want to tease that, you know, we are obviously going to bring you a wonderful episode next week, but we will also be off. But there's so much Christmas excitement to be looking forward to Kate's concert as well as the Christmas walk. And then we'll be back right away in the new year with a great episode Finally, getting into The Crown Part 2. We brought you The Crown and our thoughts on Part 1, but this will be our feedback on Part 2 in the new year. Yeah, and we figured giving everyone the Christmas break to watch The Crown Part 2, all six episodes, would be a little bit nice, and so we didn't spoil it for anyone, So, and giving ourselves a little bit of a break. All right. Well, we have this delightful note. We've been getting so many wonderful listener emails. So thank you, everyone, for writing in. We will get to all of them. We're, we're parsing through them all. We got this note from Savannah. She writes that she is a longtime listener of the podcast. And I love this. It's a must listen every week for me. And I respectfully force it upon friends and family when there are particularly juicy topics y'all are discussing. It made me laugh. <laughs> She writes to tell us how much she enjoyed our interview with Tom Quinn. This is her quote. I thought his research on the childhoods of the royals was poignant and explains so much about the choices that many of them have made as adults. I've always felt that Queen Elizabeth's biggest misstep was prioritizing her role as monarch over her role as mother to all of her children, but most particularly Charles. Doing so was short-sighted and could have had catastrophic effects on the institution, given the scandals that several of her children have been involved in over the years. She adds, the ripple effects on future generations of heirs could have ensured the thriving of the monarchy for years to come. She notes that she does like that the cycle is being corrected currently, she feels, by William and Kate, thanks to the influence of Diana and the Middletons, as we've discussed here. And she says, I love seeing Kate not only change this in the royal family, but shed light on the importance of spending intentional quality time with children in every family. The final piece from Savannah, which, Roberta, if you scroll down, I popped the pics in the dog just so you could pull them up again. Oh, my goodness. She recently happened upon a artist that also seems to be royally obsessed. Savvy Blake is the name at a boutique. And she bought herself a gift that then told her husband that her Christmas gift was all set. She bought it on his behalf. It is a (laughs) illustration that is a rock and roll version of the queen. She's wearing a pink blazer. She's totally styling. But there are so many other portraits to choose. And you can go to the website for Savvy Blake, the artist. And they're all online. So there's one of Diana in a blue blazer with a Harvard sweatshirt. It's very basically rock and roll. 
Yeah, it's like pop art. I love that the queen is wearing a T-shirt that says, I am a rich man. Yes, <laughs> I absolutely love it. I love it. It's really fun. Totally frameworthy. What a good find. I know. Thanks, Savannah, for writing in. And we agree. We loved having Tom on the pod. All right, moving on to this week in royal history. Flashing back 31 years ago to December 23rd, 1992, when Queen Elizabeth's Christmas speech was leaked by a publication. I mean, what's new, Rachel? Royals versus the media. It's like the tale as old as time for us. I know. The Sun, the newspaper, broke an embargo by publishing a center spread of the word-for-word text of Queen Elizabeth's full speech two days before it aired on Christmas Day. Huge deal. The Sun insisted that they got it through legal means and that they did not break an embargo. They said it was speculation that a satellite TV enthusiast may have somehow intercepted it for The Sun, or there might have been a BBC mole. There's all kinds of speculation because the source of the leak was never found. They still don't know what happened. And it was a big year for this to leak because, as you mentioned at the top of the episode, it was the Queen's Honest Horribilis, 1992. We know that Charles and Diana separated as well as Andrew and Fergie. Princess Anne divorced Mark Phillips. The Windsor Castle fire. I mean, the list goes on and on. Andrew Morton's release of Diana, her true story. It's like a pile on. People were so curious as to what the Queen would say. And she does kind of mention it a little bit. We're going to roll a clip of her speech. Like many other families... We have lived through some difficult days this year. The prayers, understanding, and sympathy given to us by so many of you in good times and bad have lent us great support and encouragement. It has touched me deeply that much of this has come from those of you who have troubles of your own. As some of you may have heard me observe, it has indeed been a somber year. But Christmas is surely the right moment to try to put it behind us and to find a moment to pray for those, wherever they are, who are doing their best in all sorts of ways to make things better in 1993. Rachel, as a journalist, for those listening that don't know, can you please define embargo for me? Oh, great question. Basically, you agree to a date when you're allowed to publish the news that you are being shared in advance. So I feel like it is fascinating to me when I first was thinking about this, why you would want to leak this speech. Like, is it really in-depth? But the year 1992 is just, I'm sure they were just, everyone was waiting to hear how she would address such a complicated year for the family when a lot of their traditional values were very much under fire. Yeah, I think that is the crux of this. And oftentimes with an embargo, there are legal ramifications. So the palace was really, really upset about this breach. So the repercussions, the palace decided that they no longer share this Christmas Day speech in advance with publications, which they were doing before, so that the papers can have it ready to print the day it goes live. We know, you know, that kind of is how that works. Which is very helpful for timeliness. Yeah. They also, the palace also switched the venue from Sandringham to Windsor or Buckingham Palace. That might have been due to security. They did record some speeches before 1992 at those venues, but they decided now to only record at Windsor Castle or Buckingham. Palace. Also, post-1995, the BBC wasn't the sole rights holder anymore. The Palace decided to add another network, ITN, to their recordings. 
This definitely was thought to be because of the backlash of BBC Panorama interview with Princess Diana, which we're all familiar with. I just wanted to talk a little bit about last year's speech. It was the first of King Charles III as we look forward to Monday and what that day will bring for the Christmas broadcast. I know I'll be watching and tuning in, but I did want to flashback because it was such a poignant speech and such a poignant year to be the first without Queen Elizabeth. So here's a little clip from that. I'm standing here in this exquisite chapel of St. George at Windsor Castle, so close to where my beloved mother, the late Queen, is laid to rest with my dear father. I am reminded of the deeply touching letters, cards, and messages which so many of you have sent my wife and myself. And I cannot thank you enough for the love and sympathy you have shown our whole family. I'll be interested to see what he talks about this year. Do you have any predictions, Rachel? Yeah, I mean, I think I was just watching our rapt attention as we were just queuing up that clip. I mean, Charles just, like his mother, his cadence is just so wonderful to hear. It's kind of mesmerizing. Yeah, like, I just, again, like, he needs to do the bedtime stories on, uh, what is it, the Calm yeah, app or something. the Calm app. Yeah. So relaxing, and that's always what we got from the Queen. But I, I do wonder, you know, it's, like, not the same as 1992. Obviously, there's been bigger bumps since 2020 and the Sussex's departure, but it's always that time of year when family comes together, and how will he acknowledge the splintering? Probably not, but I, I, I think that's always something that we're thinking about. But I think that consistency is always what we look forward to with the Christmas speech from the monarch. Yeah. And besides kind of honoring and, you know, flashing back to the queen, Charles also had a lot of religious elements to the speech last year across all different religions, which was really interesting. He talked about visiting Bethlehem and seeing the place where the manger was, where Jesus was born. So it's it'll be interesting to see if there's sort of a little bit of a theme this year. More royals on the airwaves, though. Camilla has announced that she's launching a podcast. It's called The Queen's Reading Room after her charity, and it'll be available January 8th, 2024. She's not the host, but she is going to record a short segment each week for each episode. I am so excited about this. Her upcoming guests Ann Patchett, Bonnie Garmus, <gasps> among others. Yeah, huge names. Lessons in Chemistry, Tom Lake. I mean, it's- did you read Lessons in Chemistry? No, I watched the show, but I did read Tom Lake. I'm reading it right now, and then I'm going to watch the show. I cannot wait. It's. I'm really enjoying the book. So, can I borrow it from you after? Yes, of course, always. <laughs> and now our delightful conversation with Tracy Borman. Row Rose, what better way to get into the holiday spirit than to bring you a royal Christmas-themed conversation? We're lucky today to be joined by Tracy Borman. She's an author and historian, as well as Joint Chief Curator for Historic Royal Palaces, the charity that manages Hampton Court Palace, the Tower of London, Kensington Palace, Kew Palace, Hillsborough Castle, among many others. We are so thrilled that she's here to join us today to chat royal Christmas traditions. Tracy, welcome. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you. Well, we can't start off and discuss anything royal Christmas related without first discussing the OG queen of Christmas, Queen Victoria. Many of our best known Christmas traditions are products of the Victorian era. Is that right? 
Well, that's right. And actually, so many royal traditions, not just Christmas ones, began with Queen Victoria. And really, we think of her when we think of Christmas, because it was the age of Charles Dickens and, of course, his famous book, A Christmas Carol. And Victoria and her husband, Albert, clearly loved Christmas. Now, they are given credit for some traditions that actually started a bit before them, such as the Christmas tree. That was actually Queen Charlotte, the consort of George III, who really started introducing that custom of bringing a tree into your home and decorating it. But Victoria and Albert uh, used pine trees and, uh, and really did it in style. So they made it very popular. And they also popularised the sending of Christmas cards as well. Of course, that's still a mass industry today mm -hmm. and I think it was Prince Albert who sent the first official Christmas card and obviously that's a tradition that still endures so yes good old Queen Victoria we've got a lot to thank her for when it comes to Christmas oh wow I didn't know about the Christmas cards that's so fascinating that is so interesting did they include a photo back then probably not right I know, but I think there was some kind of sketch of the family. And um, yes, it was all very festive. Although Victorian Christmas cards themselves were weird. <laughs> like they, they were designed to shock. So forget scenes of, you know, Santa and Robins. They had murderous clowns, <laughs> armies of red ants. We why? And lobsters because Victorian Christmas cards were kind of intended to provoke and be conversation Got starters oh, really wow. and these were people who you know thought nothing of being pictured with their dead relatives so I think <laughs> you know fashions have changed thankfully over the years. Wow when did that evolution happen where it started to be more sort of the birds and po like beautiful Christmas illustrations yeah more festive um, that was really during the World Wars because um, Christmas cards then became much more about nostalgia mm -hmm. and and kind of boosting morale and arguably pictures of dead robins that the Victorians liked didn't really boost morale that much. Wow. So they were much more sort of pretty snow scenes and things like that. And, and that's how they've continued to this day. Oh, oh my, my goodness, that is incredible. What an evolution, as you said. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk to us about Christmas decor. Does each monarch put their own spin on the trimmings? We're picturing something along the lines of what our first ladies do when they decorate the White House with different themes each year in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, to an extent, although there are certain things that you will always find in a traditional historic Christmas, such as the Yule log. And that's probably the oldest part of any Christmas because it, it sort of predates what we would know as, as Christmas. Um, and it was sort of an old midwinter festival where you'd light the Yule log. And so that was very much in evidence at any royal Christmas through the centuries. And most royals uh, also like to use real greenery. So none of your tinsel <laughs> and, and fake trees, they would get the real thing, you know, boughs of, of holly and, and real mistletoe. And so it would have smelt amazing as well as actually looking incredibly festive. But some monarchs went to town more than others. Probably no surprise that Henry VIII really did do Christmas in some style, bigger than better than anyone else. He spent the equivalent of millions and millions wow. on Christmas every single year because he wanted to do it better than anyone else. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, my gosh. Tracy, we want to ask you, what's the oldest royal Christmas tradition that's still around today? So the oldest tradition would probably be around food and drink. 
obviously exactly what we drink and eat has evolved over the centuries and certainly with the royals it has but the christmas pudding goes back an awful long way it used to be much more savory and mm. meat based and uh, sort of spiced wine that's also a very ancient tradition we call it uh, maybe mulled wine today but it would have been known as hippocras for example during the tudor period that was a very heavily spiced rich wine and you know the yule log I mentioned that as being a very ancient tradition. And I think log fires are still you know, a key part of a royal Christmas today uh, at Sandringham, which tends to be the favoured Christmas retreat for the modern day royals. Yeah, I feel like all the smells, as you mentioned, the aromatherapy element of holidays with the royals, it does seem very a huge part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And we try to recreate that at Hampton Courts, where I work, in that um, you walk around and you can smell the, the sort of cloves and the, the orange peel that decorated the trees in Tudor times and that we've kind of recreated. I just love those festive smells. Wow, that must smell so lovely. Well, are there any newer traditions? I guess newer is all relative when you're speaking about Henry VIII and, you know, way back when, but in the last century or so, any newer traditions that have started? Well, I guess the newer traditions involve technology. The Christmas broadcast, for example, when the, when the king or queen gives a speech to the nation, that dates back to the 1930s. Um, and then, of course, that technology has evolved. So now you might get the Christmas tweet or post from the official sort of royal account and pictures of the royals uh, are also sometimes posted um, at Christmas as well. So really now it's an age of mass media and I think that's reflected in some of the royal traditions. Apparently, it has also become very popular in recent years to have a game of charades on Christmas Day at Sandringham. So charades and football, okay. apparently, All right. when the weather's when okay, uh, which it often isn't in Britain around Christmas. But uh, yeah, apparently uh, the, the younger members of the family like a good old game of Christmas football. I mm. love that. I love that. Well, you mentioned the Christmas broadcast too, and that's a royal tradition that dates dates back to 1932 with King George V. How has that changed over the years and how has it stayed the same in nearly 100 years since? Yes. So uh, George V did this very reluctantly. He didn't want to give a Christmas broadcast at all, but he was persuaded that this is what the nation wanted. And the person who was really instrumental in this was the director, uh, the first director of the BBC, you know, the, the biggest broadcaster really in in Britain and George eventually agreed and it was a radio broadcast and the script was written for him uh, by Rudyard Kipling of course a very renowned uh, author and it proved so popular that the public wanted one every single year so it it started a tradition and it used to be broadcast live but then that changed with the advent of television. Uh, Elizabeth II introduced the televised broadcast in 1957. And that then tended to be pre-recorded as the years went on, because that made it possible then to, to kind of get it across the world more easily. And obviously live broadcasts are fraught with uh, risk 
So it, to this day, remains something that's recorded in advance. Mm, we know that well, that live broadcast yeah, can yeah, be yeah. tricky. <laughs> stressful, we, pressure. We, yeah. Well, you mentioned before kind of the, the creepy strangeness of those old Victorian cards. There are some really kind of darker Christmas tales from the royals. One thing I saw in our research was Henry II eating a crane, the bird, in Ireland yeah. for his Christmas feast, or Christmas being canceled by Charles I in the 1600s. Are there any other kind of weird, creepy tales from royal Christmases? <laughs> yeah, well, to start with the cancellation one, because there's a lot of myths surrounding that, that was actually not so much Charles as his enemies, the mm. parliamentarians who were trying to depose him, and indeed they did depose him during the Civil War and had him executed. They didn't cancel Christmas, but what they did was to cancel the more public celebrations. They thought Christmas should be a time of quiet reflection. Uh, it wasn't all that popular, I have to say, and King Charles II brought it back when he restored the monarchy. But other sort of not quite so festive tales, I think probably my favourite is one of our first ever kings, William the Conqueror, back in 1066. He actually chose Christmas Day for his coronation at Westminster Abbey, but it all went horribly wrong oh, no. because nobody wanted this man to be king. He was Duke of Normandy and, you know, he had nothing to do with the throne of England. So the people of England thought during the ceremony, there were shouts and outside the abbey and William's guards were so on edge that he was going to be assassinated that they went around London kind of torching houses and setting light to everything to try and bring this riot under control. But in fact, people were just kind of cheering for the new king. <laughs> and so it all wow. fell into total disarray. So that wasn't the happiest Christmas uh, for King William the first. Note it. Christmas coronations should be avoided. I yes. guess is the lesson. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Tracy, we want to ask, do you have a favorite decorated palace? Oh, that's such a great question because I'm spoiled. Okay, so I'm I get to to visit quite a few of them uh, working for historic royal palaces. And I have to say I have a soft spot for the Tower of London because there's a crown jewels and coronation themed Christmas display this year. Oh. It's been a very historic royal year, of course. And Hillsborough Castle over in Northern Ireland as well, where there's a walking with the snowman trail, which is just beautiful. But for me, the one, the palace that always really gets me every year in the festive spirit has to be Hampton Court because the Tudor Palace is decked out so beautifully, as close as it would have been, you know, in the in the days of Henry VIII or Elizabeth I with those beautiful scented trees and log fires burning in the kitchens. And it just looks absolutely gorgeous and well worth a visit. There are activities on throughout the Christmas holidays here in Britain. You know, we welcome visitors to come and uh, have a go at ice skating or perhaps sample some food in the historic Tudor kitchens. I guarantee it will get you in the Christmas spirit. Oh my gosh. Well, I have to say watching from afar because we were over in May for the coronation and I'm like, next year it has to be the holiday season that we yes. go to London because it just feels like the most festive place on earth. And I, I really love kind of the voyeurism looking over. So yeah, great palace tips, how to schedule our trip. <laughs> <laughs> the historic Royal Palace's account does a wonderful yes. job as well, letting us be And the podcast voyeurs. too, I really have been enjoying too. Oh, good. Yeah, it's great. That. Yeah. Well, Tracy, we have one more question, and we're sure our listeners are curious about this as well. What is your day-to-day -day like working for historic royal palaces? What would an average day be like? 
well i you know i've got major imposter syndrome here because i kind of i can't quite believe my luck working there it's a dream come true as a historian um, because as chief curator with lucy worsley we we manage the the curators and they are the historians for the palaces so we get to research the history of the palaces and to talk about it whether on podcasts like this or television programs or we write books and and curate exhibitions there's no such thing as a typical day and that's what I really love about my job because I'm based across all six of the royal palaces so it involves a lot of traveling about and I love for me my favorite part of the job is lifting that rope and going through the doors that say private on them and just getting to to sort of explore really Uh, even if it's just a broom cupboard on the other side of the door marked private it's still quite thrilling to be able to go behind closed doors so um yeah I get to nerd out a lot as chief curator. What a great answer. That I, I feel like that's the stuff you just never want to let go of that feeling in life, right? That you you feel yeah. that every time, that sort of gratitude for the experience of it all. I really do. And I've worked for the palaces for 15 years now. And that thrill as I walk down the main drive of Hampton Court or walk in Anne Boleyn's footsteps at the Tower of London, it never gets old for me. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I think our audience will appreciate that so much. Are there any exhibitions coming up in 2024 that we should look out for? Well, yes. One particularly close to my heart uh, is at Hampton Court. And we are opening up a Tudor part of the palace that has been closed for quite a few years. And we're telling this story of of the kind of early years of Henry VIII and, of course, some of his most famous actions and wives Mm. uh, will feature and a beautiful array of Tudor artefacts and paintings. And there's always something going on I have to say across the palaces but that's definitely one to watch out for and you can tell I'm a Tudor historian because of course I immediately think of something Tudor that's going on (laughs) yeah I'm really excited about that opening next spring oh we love that well we could talk to you all day but thank you so much for taking the time to join us Tracy and everyone can follow historic royal palaces on Instagram and keep up with uh, all your work so thank you so much again it's been a pleasure and Merry Christmas It is so fascinating to hear about the Victorian Christmas cards. That was just, that stood out to me. Oh, absolutely. It's time for the Royal Highs and Lows. All right, before we adjourn the Royal Pod, our highs and lows of the week. My low is the nickname that Mike Tyndall has given Prince William. Mike and Zara Tyndall went on this podcast, Seven Rob Burrow, where they asked seven questions, and he shared some interesting royal nicknames. Here's a little clip from that. For the Prince of Wales, he is known as One Pipe Willie. Uh, he is known to me as One Pipe Willie because he's he's not the best of drinkers coming from a sport where uh, it's built on the social aspect and a couple of beers being sunk quite often. So, um yeah, that's that is one that I will definitely give away for the Prince <laughs> Prince of Wales. Uh, one pint, Willie. There you go. Oh, it's out there now. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sir. <laughs> sir, sort of an unfortunate nickname. One pint, Willie. Can William not handle his booze? I guess that's why it's low. Oh my god, this is hilarious. Wait, were, were there any other nicknames that were spilled? They call Zara and Mike call each other Munchkin, and then she's he's in her phone as something kitten, which I was like, oh, I think I can. Oh my god. Yeah, they wouldn't reveal what the first word is. Hilarious. That's so funny. One Pint Willie. I love it. 
My low is that I think we kind of touched on it, just the, the disconnection still within the family. And I think we've been seeing some press within the media that may be planted where the sourcing is coming from, just that Charles wishes the family could all unite at the holidays. But I think just that disconnect that the Sussexes likely, I mean, I feel very confident in this, that they will not be there. I just, you know, I think about the cousins. We always talk about our cousin love and just that, you know, I think getting everyone back together at some point in the future, I'm optimistically saying would be nice, especially around the holidays. But I understand the estrangement, of course. I did want to also shout out, this is not part of my low, but we did get to see Megan in this fantastic Clever Brands video where she popped up. And I feel like it just showcased what we love about her, which is kind of that nerdiness, right? It felt like a high school project in the best possible way where she was popping up in all these like, you know, right? Where you kind of like stage a video when you were in middle school or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. So cute. Yes. I I, We did get the Sussex's Christmas card and we haven't really chatted about that on the pod yet, but I I will say that my I'm attaching myself to your low as well and adding that I was a little disappointed to not see the kids because we so rarely see them. All right, my high this week is Harry's legal win against the Mirror Group. This came out after we recorded our podcast last week. Just a feeling of vindication for Harry. That's why it's a high. And also that Piers Morgan was found to officially and legally be lying. So cheers Cheers to to that. My high is all the speculation that's kind of running rampant that Kate might choose her own alma mater for George and the kids to attend secondary school, Marlboro College versus Eaton. I feel like this is very exciting. And the reason it's a high for me is I think it's another example of the Royals charting their own path. We know that Diana famously didn't send William and Harry to Gordonstone as everyone royal generations before had gone. They went to Eton. And now Kate is choosing something much more progressive as well. It's the big deal is that it's co-ed. And with the kids currently at Lambrook, the education is co-ed. They're there until they turn 13. She'd be able to continue that. It also is, you know, she was previously bullied at her alma mater before joining Marlboro School. So I like that she is kind of laying the stake in the ground and making that choice that feels right for her and right for her kids. I think just I hope it happens. I really do, because I I like that conviction there. And I'm excited. You know, we have a little bit to wait, but I know she's in that decision making process and has popped up at Marlboro for tours a couple times unannounced. So exciting to see in the new year. Yeah, I hope that that's what George is able to do. Just a reminder before we close, leave us a royal review and a rating. We would love that. Someone wrote in to us and said, hello, ladies, I absolutely love your podcast and wish I found you long ago, slowly catching up on old ones while keeping up with the new. Roberta, what earrings did you get, Rachel, please? Also, which flower sweater did you get? Thank you so much from Jenna. So the earrings are Shashi from Shopbop. They're the Grace earrings. They look very Elizabeth Debicki as Diana in part one of The Crown, season six. They're like 90s chunky gold, not earrings. They are stunning. I I can't believe I don't have them on right now because I've worn them (laughs) nearly every day since I received them, but they are fantastic. So I will absolutely co-sign on everyone grabbing that pair. Oh my gosh, that makes me so happy. Did get the Flar blue sweater, but they were actually sold out of the other two colors, I believe. So go Laura Ann. Yeah, it looks stunning on you. I love that. So cozy. Oh my gosh. It is. I'm not just saying this because we love Laura Ann as a person. Like it is my favorite jacket and I think I've already influenced 10 other people to buy. Wow. Oh my gosh. Now I want to. My Well, my parents keep the house at like a, a, you know, chilly 60 degrees. And so I've been bundled up in it to keep warm and it's great. Yeah. 
All right, remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast. Send us an email info at gallerypodcasts.com. And till next week, God, God save, save the, the pod. pod. Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas. Her Majesties of Royally Obsessed have retired for this episode. God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a gallery podcast production.